0: be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For, for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not, not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. The Lord bless his word as it has been read and now as it is preached to us from our text found in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Where we find these words He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. God has instituted government in this world in order that there might be righteousness, peace, and order in the home, in the church, and in the nation. Those civil powers that are legitimately called the ordinance of God in Romans chapter 13 verse 2 must have certain moral qualifications according to that particular passage. The apostle Paul first of all states in Romans 13:3 that they must not be a terror to good works, but rather a terror to evil works. If they would qualify, as having moral authority to rule. Secondly, in verse 4, they must be the ministers of God to thee for good. To thee, that is, to the church of Jesus Christ, as well as to the citizens of that nation. And thirdly, in the same verse, they must be ministers of God, showing forth God's vengeance in executing wrath upon those who do evil. If they would be the ordinance of God in truth, <clears throat> but how is the civil magistrate to know what is good and what is evil? Does Congress or Parliament, does the Supreme Court, does the will of the people or the Constitution of a nation determine what is good and what is evil? Absolutely not. Only God determines what is morally good what is morally evil. And he has revealed what is good and evil in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Therefore, when rulers blatantly and obstinately disregard the commandments of God by establishing and enforcing their own sinful laws and constitutions, they will be a terror to the righteous rather than a terror to the wicked. And they certainly will not be a minister of God to the faithful church of Jesus Christ for good. And when they do so, rulers depose themselves as the ordinance of God and dispossess themselves of God's moral authority to rule. They may be rulers, but they are the mere ordinance of man rather than the ordinance of God. They may enact and enforce laws, but God says in Psalm 94.20 that they frame mischief or trouble by law. Dylan, it is not only those who fulfill the divine conditions laid out by God in Romans 13 who have a moral authority from God to rule. When God grants to us such a moral authority I should say it it is only those who fulfill those divine conditions who have the moral authority to rule. When God grants to us in his appointed time such moral rulers, we will joyfully submit to them for conscience sake. But until then, we cannot recognize the authority of those who despise God's commandments, even though we submit to them for wrath's sake, much like we would submit to a thief who held a gun to our heads and demanded our wallet. We love our country. We pray for repentance to be granted to civil magistrates that they may be converted. We pray for peace even under ungodly civil magistrates that we may continue to propagate the gospel and the truth. We also pray that God will hasten the day of reformation when magistrates will be a terror to the wicked rather than a terror to the righteous. Andrew Melville, a burning and bright light of reformation in Scotland around the time of John Knox, correctly observed in his commentary on Romans 13 that it was only those who fulfilled the divine conditions that were laid out in Romans chapter 13 that were legitimate magistrates. And not all magistrates in general, not all magistrates indiscriminately, but those who fulfill those conditions. When he said, Therefore, it is good princes and legitimate magistrates of whom the apostle here treats and so graphically describes to whom all legitimate obedience is due. From our text in Proverbs 17.15, let us consider the following three main points. Now this week we are going to consider only one of those three main points, the first one, which is, it is an abomination to justify the wicked. Next week, we shall continue the sermon and lay out the last two main points, which are these. It is an abomination to condemn the righteous. And thirdly, it is not an abomination for God to justify the ungodly. First of all, then, it is an abomination to justify the wicked. Solomon describes as an abomination two acts committed by rulers, namely these two, to justify the wicked and to condemn the just. The word abomination expresses many times in Scripture the abhorrence and the hatred of God that he has towards specified sins. Now, that does not mean that uh, God views some sins as deserving is eternal wrath and condemnation whereas other sins do not deserve that same eternal wrath and condemnation for god does not distinguish sins into categories of mortal and venial as does the romish church in which some sins namely moral or mortal deprive one of grace and deserve god's eternal punishment while other sins called or described as venial Do not deprive one of grace and do not deserve God's eternal punishment. For God says through James, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2.10. Likewise, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question 84. It asks the question, What does every sin deserve? The answer given is that every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. However, even though every sin deserves God's eternal wrath and condemnation, some sins are, in the scripture, specifically identified as an abomination to God. Abomination, as we said, means that which God abhors and hates. And certainly, God abhors and hates all sins. But specific sins are noted as an abomination to God. Some of the sins specifically mentioned in the Scripture as abominations unto God are sodomy, in Leviticus 20 verse 13; idolatry, in Deuteronomy 7:25; child sacrifice in Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, and incest in Leviticus 18, verse 29. I wonder how many of us uh, have committed the abominations that are listed in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and following. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, ye seven, are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. <clears throat> Dear ones, we cannot so easily excuse ourselves as we read over that list, because simply because we have not sacrificed our children or aborted them. For we are all guilty of hateful abominations before the Lord our God. Not only before our conversion, but even since our conversion, we are guilty of such abominations before God. We continually, therefore, dear ones, stand in need of the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ every single day. But I want to also say, before moving on, that abominations, though indeed sins which God detests with all of His being, they are sins which, and they are sins which deserve the eternal punishment and judgment of God. Yet all abominations which we have committed, if we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, exercising faith in Him exercising faith to receive His full and complete pardon, to receive His righteousness, we can be pardoned of all of those detestable abominations. All the legal demands of God's law, dear ones, against us, for the abominations that we have committed against the Lord were once and forever settled and satisfied when Christ died and redeemed us his people from the curse of the law. And dear ones, that is why as we grow in our understanding of the greatest love that's ever been known, that of God's love for abominable sinners like you and me, our conscience cannot delight in sinning against Christ. For how can we possibly delight In slapping such a Savior, who has shown us such love, slapping Him in the face by trampling upon that everlasting love that died to remove forever the guilt and punishment of those abominations and died to mortify those abominations in our lives. Dear ones, a true understanding of God's love doesn't lead to a lawless and reckless life of rebellion but rather to a thankful and joyful life of obedience. But here in Proverbs 17:15 we find the same word used to describe two acts of rulers which acts God says are an abomination to him. These two acts may make it into the same hated category of abominations in God's sight as the abominations which we have just mentioned. And what are these abominations? We've mentioned them briefly to justify the wicked and to condemn the righteous. Let us, since we will only have time to cover uh, this week the first one, let us consider the abomination of justifying The wicked. God considers it, dear ones, an abomination when rulers justify the wicked and justify the cause of the wicked. To justify means to declare someone or something righteous, it is a legal, judicial term. It does not mean to make someone or something righteous. For when a ruler gives his judgment in a case, he does not make a person righteous. He declares a person to be righteous or to be innocent. If the person that appears before him in a court of law is truly righteous, the judge does not make him righteous or innocent, but he only again declares him to be so. And certainly if, on the other hand, the person that appears before him in that same court of law were guilty, were actually wicked, were actually guilty of the crime for which he stands there before the judge, and yet the judge either misses certain evidence, is just entirely incorrect in his judgment, he does not make that one who is guilty righteous by declaring him to be righteous. You see, therefore, in very stark and clear terms, to justify does not mean to make righteous. It means to declare righteous. Dear ones, according to our text, God does not have a neutral opinion toward magistrates in nations or elders in a church who justify or declare righteous those who are wicked or who justify as righteous declares righteous the cause of the wicked. He abominates, he hates, and he abhors such sins for it completely, listen closely, it completely undermines the foundation of all government established by God which Paul implies in Romans 13:3 through four should be to justify that which is good, righteous and holy, and condemn that which is wicked and evil. Let me give a contemporary illustration of how rulers in our nation are even required by the Constitution to justify the wicked. For if the civil magistrate cannot uphold or enforce commandments one through four of the ten commandments because they are religious, then by necessity they must ignore and rule contrary to God's holy law, thereby justifying that which is wicked rather than that which is righteous. They're required by law to justify the wicked. We certainly see that magistrates of this nation justify the wicked in the way that they despise commandments 5 through 10 as well. In making it legal to murder an unborn child. In making it legal to commit adultery or to commit incest or making it legal to, to practice sodomy and even rewarding and granting to them a legal a, a position and status by allowing them to adopt children, allowing them to have the same benefits that those who are genuinely married have by way of insurances and pensions and things like this. But what we want to focus on at this point is how the civil magistrate is required by law to justify the wicked because the civil magistrate is required to deny the first four commandments of God's ten commandments. There are problems with such a national constitution but let me give you three particular problems in this area of how the civil magistrate must justify the wicked. The first problem is this. It implies that some of God's commandments do not apply to members of society in their official capacities. Nothing could be further from the truth, dear ones. For as our confession of faith teaches, as does the Scripture, as do all the confessions of Reformed churches of the First and Second Reformation, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law of God which obliges all people in all capacities, in all periods of history. <clears throat> The office of the civil magistrate is ordained of God and he is established to rule on behalf of God. According to Romans 13.4, he is called the minister of God. But our magistrates have stated they have no obligation to God to keep those commandments, those first four commandments, which pertain to him and his official capacity as a magistrate. The second problem is this. It violates the clear teaching of God's word in other passages. God makes it very clear that the nations of the world and their civil magistrates are obligated to honor him and to honor his anointed son in their official capacities as civil magistrates. We see in Psalm 2 how magistrates and judges are commanded to to kiss the Son, lest God's wrath fall upon them. These are not magistrates within Israel. These are heathen magistrates. The magistrates of the world are commanded to kiss the Son, to worship Him, to honor Him, to rule for Him in their official capacity as magistrates. We find as well in Psalm 9, verse 17, <clears throat> here we find the Lord saying the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God all the nations not simply individuals within those nations but nations shall be turned into hell that forget God In Psalm 33 verse 12 Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The passage goes on to, to say that God looks from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. This certainly is not a passage that speaks to only Israel. Blessed is the nation. Whose God is the Lord, but speaks to all nations of the world. In Psalm 79, verse 6, we read these words Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name. The kingdoms of this world that have not called upon thy name in their official capacity as a nation calling upon God to be their God. In Isaiah 37, verse 16, this is the prayer of Hezekiah. And he prays, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth, the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. Not of some of them, not of Israel alone, but of all the kingdoms of the earth. And those who do not acknowledge him to be their God, God says he will judge. And then Isaiah chapter 60, verse 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. And we have already noted in Romans thirteen, verses one through four, how the civil magistrate is called to be a minister of God. Minister of God to thee, both the church and the faithful church of Jesus Christ and the citizens of that nation to be to be a minister of God for good. Not to embrace the one true reformed religion as a nation, dear once is not neutral, but anti-Christian according to the Lord. All such nations and civil magistrates will be judged accordingly by God for their national idolatry. For what does the phrase under God, on our money, or in the Pledge of Allegiance mean according to Congress, the President, or the Supreme Court? It basically means whatever you want it to mean. It doesn't mean under the one true living God of the Bible. It means whatever you want God to mean in your life under God. It is really, dear ones, as it presently stands, according to our Constitution, it is an idolatrous phrase. Not a proper biblical phrase. A third problem that we find in our present circumstances as it relates to the civil magistrate in upholding the first four commandments the Ten Commandments is this. If magistrates are to uphold Commandments 5 through 10 but not Commandments 1 through 4 man has more rights than God who by his almighty providences raises up nations and puts down nations and magistrates for his own glory. If that is the case Man has more rights than God himself within our nation. In fact, God, I would submit to you, has no legal rights within our nation to preserve his own honor or his religion where the civil magistrate is not obligated to keep the first four commandments. He has no rights according to the Constitution and laws of our land your dog or your cat, dear ones, have more rights within this nation than does God. The civil government can officially protect the rights of dogs and cats that are abused, but the civil government cannot protect the rights of the one true living God when he and his religion are abused. Thus, the magistrates of this nation And of all the nations of the world cannot do anything else, dear ones, but justify the wicked and their wicked causes. For they cannot, according to their immoral constitutions, promote and defend God, Christ, the true religion, and the commandments of God in their official capacities." Let me give you another realm in which rulers may justify the wicked or wicked causes. And that's within the church of Jesus Christ. For when ministers and elders promote and defend denominationalism or sectarianism or pluralism within the church, they promote and defend tolerated schism and division within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Christ prayed as to his body that it should be one throughout the world, according to John 17, verse 21. One of the chief purposes of the Solemn League and Covenant in 1643 within the kingdoms of England, Ireland, and Scotland was to unite the church of Jesus Christ in those nations to remove denominationalism and to promote that same unity and uniformity of the one true reformed religion between other nations so that the name of God might be one and his revealed religion one throughout the entire earth. Thus, I would submit to you, dear ones, sectarianism is a wicked cause which rulers in the church justify. Heresies, impure worship, and tyrannical church government are an abomination unto God, for these errors likewise justify that which is wicked. Beloved, making excuses for preferred people in the congregation due to their wealth. <coughs> Or due to their relationship to you, or due to their influence, as to why they do not have to follow the same commandments that all the other people in the congregation must follow, is likewise to justify a wicked cause, to show favoritism or partiality on the part of rulers within the church. It's a grievous sin unto God, an abomination. There may be certain circumstances that need to be taken into consideration as we apply the law and the commandments of God to the individuals in our congregation. But when those circumstances are the same with other people, so the sentence and judgment and ruling should be the same with all other people who are in those circumstances. We don't make special exceptions for simply one person or one family or one group of people that is to justify a wicked cause. This too is hateful, a hateful abomination to the Lord our God, how it behooves us as ministers and elders to carefully rule according to the commandments of our Lord, lest we be guilty of justifying that which is wicked. Finally, the last illustration, the last Application of this truth that I would make is that you yourselves who sit in the congregation today may justify a wicked cause as a parent, as a husband or wife, as a son or daughter, or as a friend. How so, you may ask. Whenever you ignore or condone that which is immoral in your life or in the life of others, you, in effect, justify your or their wickedness. You declare by your approval, by your actions, that wickedness, you declare it to be righteousness. Are we as parents, I would ask us, are we as parents guilty of such an abomination before The Lord our God, by giving our approval when we consider entertainment for ourselves and for our children, giving our approval to immoral movies, music, or literature that commend, that approve of the breaking of God's holy commandments? Are we guilty, dear ones, in our own lives of such an abomination? by our justifying sinful habits in our lives, condoning them, simply passing over them. I urge you this day, let us not follow in the paths of those who justify that which is evil, as did the Pharisees, who justified themselves before God, and before others. Or as the Jews who justified Barabbas instead of justifying Christ. Or as Lot's wife who by her looking back to Sodom and Gomorrah with a longing for it justified its wickedness rather than condemning its wickedness. In conclusion today... In order that we may avoid justifying the wicked, let us give careful attention to the following practical guidelines. First of all, let us realize that in the decisions we make in our lives, we are continually facing these options. Will we justify that which is wicked, or will we justify that which is righteous? For we implicitly justify that which is wicked when we do not consciously choose that which is good and righteous. We justify the opposite. Second, let us therefore not treat the decisions in our lives as irrelevant or unimportant or relegated to a merely secular part of our life excluding God and His holy commandments from them. Thirdly, let us gather carefully all the information we need before making decisions, even if others think we are unnecessarily slow in coming to a decision. Let us gather all the information we need to make a righteous decision rather than rashly make a decision which, in effect, promotes that which is wicked. Fourthly, let us prayerfully seek God's divine wisdom. Let us not simply take it for granted that God will supply His wisdom. God calls us to ask and to seek for His wisdom in making the decisions that are within our life. Fifthly, let us endeavor by God's grace to obey the revealed will of God in those areas in which we already know God has revealed himself. Let us follow those areas. Let us walk in that path of light and understanding by God's grace which he has already given to us. Where we're certain. Where we're sure. Because why should God, again, give us further insight and light so that we might not justify the righteous or the unrighteous, that we might not justify the wicked or justify that which is evil if we're not already justifying that which is righteous in our life by our obedience to his revealed will. Sixthly, Let us wisely apply God's holy commandments as a rule to all decisions which we make in life, lest we find ourselves justifying that which is wicked rather than justifying that which is good and righteous. That means that we must be students of the Word of God. Let us study God's Word. Let us know it. Let us grow in our knowledge of God, of Christ, and of His Word and learning to apply it wisely to all areas of life. And finally, let us justify that which is righteous not in order to justify ourselves before God, but rather to manifest our love and thankfulness to a Savior who has so perfectly justified and declared us to be righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Dear ones, justifying that which is righteous, that which is good and holy, are not acts of the flesh that flow from the covenant of works, but rather they are acts of God's undeserved mercy that flow from the covenant of grace. Our ability to justify that which is good and righteous is all of grace. Is all of God's mercy and not due to any of our inherent wisdom or knowledge or abilities. Let us therefore not boast in ourselves or take any credit to ourselves in this matter. For if it is an abomination to rob a man, as is taught in Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 through 16, how much more it is an abomination. To rob God of the glory, the honor, the credit, which is due unto him. Let us therefore, dear ones, endeavor by the grace of God to justify that which is righteous, and not to justify that which is wicked. Let us stand together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou hast given to us thy revealed will and not only for us as individuals but father for us as as parents as husbands and wives as children as rulers within the church as rulers within the nation as supervisors at work, whatever, O oh Lord, our calling may be, Thou hast given to us by word that we might in all of those places justify that which is righteous rather than that which is wicked. We pray, our Father, that Thou would grant to us eyes to behold and to see these things more clearly. That Thou would help us, Lord, not to treat the, uh, the decisions of our life as being secular, to act like the civil magistrates within our land as if God is not to be honored within our lives in certain areas. Father, help us to see that that Thy holy commandments do pertain to all of the areas of our life. We ask, our Father, that Thou would grant to our nation and to its leaders genuine and true repentance, that they would cease from locking thee out of their most hallowed, idolatrous halls of legislation and jurisdiction. That that, Father, they may welcome, invite thee, own thee to be their God, the God of this nation. And therefore, Father, that they would establish the very purpose of the civil magistrate as an office and and being a terror to the wicked but justifying O Lord the righteous we do ask Lord that thou would hasten the day when these things will be true even within our nation and the nations of the world by thy grace and by thy might and power for we ask this in Christ's name Amen. Amen